Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when Alexander O'Neill was given the souvenir mug by the presenters of Sky TV's Hitmix UK and replied, Oh, how nice, a Hitmix UK vase. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer and author Gabby Hutchison Crouch. Gabby, what are you up to? Where can we find it? At the moment, I am writing a comedy history podcast that goes out on Radio 4 at uh, half past nine on a Monday morning called Homeschool History and is also available on BBC Sounds. Uh, that's with Greg Jenner. I've got one book out called Darkwoods, which is a family-friendly comedy fantasy. And the sequel, Such Big Teeth, is out on the 25th of June. OK, I'm hoping the fantasy in it is completely unrelated to the fantasy presence in your first choice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a listen to the theme song, which sounds like it comes from something else altogether. song that I've not heard for a very, very long time. That was a theme from Parallel 9, which really, as we'll come back to, is about three shows in one. Gabby, what was going on here? <laughs> that is one of three shows, basically, that were incredibly different, but were technically the same show. This is Parallel 9. It was a Saturday morning show. It was a, the summer replacement for Going Live and Live and Kicking, I think. I think it might have spanned Going Live and Live and Kicking in the early 90s. I really liked the summer replacements. <laughs> going Live was fine, but it was it was mostly into, you know, it had, had the fun games and stuff like that. But the Saturday morning summer shows were mad. Because I think Ghost Train was another Saturday morning summer replacement for the, for the bigger show on ITV. And they'd have these vague narratives to them. Certainly Parallel 9 had this loose narrative to it. So in the first series, Makata, the um, lead character, is very much a, a Doctor Who type character who's been in prison. So Parallel Nine is a prison, a time prison where he's done some sort of time crime. You know what he actually did? I was shocked when I read this earlier. He was in prison for summoning an Earth girl to his home planet due to his thirst for knowledge. Oh jeez, that's not quite well now. <laughs> and he's really old as well, and she yes. thinks he's quite young. <laughs> Time you tree. <laughs> He's condemned for being a time you tree to only be awake for two hours every week between nine and eleven on a Saturday. I remember that being sort of quite sort of it had that sort of dark, not quite Doctor Who because Doctor Who wasn't on at the time, but it was more sort of you know the sort of Red Dwarf series five that had that sort of nice grittiness to it that I really liked. It really appealed to me, and they they completely changed it in series two. They completely changed the whole cast. But they still made the protagonist a man called Makata. It's just he was a completely different character played by a different actor. He was more of a sort of a, he looked kind of David Bowie. He had sort of like, I think he had like silver lipstick and stuff. They had also brought in this sort of, they had a caravan on Earth, this sort of depressing static caravan that I think mostly had actors from Neighbours interviewing like really low rent boy bands. From what I remember, it almost always had that, the boy band who, the USP was that they could play some instruments. <laughs> 
like one of them could play the drums. I was like, they're a proper band, you guys, because one of them can play the drums. What? Let Loose was that? Let Loose, that was the name. <laughs> it's in, it, it was always either Let Loose or Worlds Apart. They never had any of the good boy bands. Are they? they always had like the really lame ones to like sit in a sad caravan and tell Joe Mangle or something what their favourite colour was. And that took up more and more of the show. It was more and more of it was like this really sort of depressing caravan with, with Brother Beyond sitting in it looking really upset. But I wanted it to be more about space. And yeah, they changed it to something more upbeat. And the third series was the last series I remember really, really enjoying. It had a loose narrative to it, which was fun. It was science fiction-y when it wasn't in the caravan. And they changed Makesha again. <laughs> they changed the whole cast yet again. It had the woman who played Maid Marian in it as a very Maid Marian y sort of space adventurer lady. And Makata was this very sort of rimmerish character. He was very sort of the camp little Napoleon. <laughs> He <laughs> was just a dick and I loved him. <laughs> he was wonderful. And there was also the little green man who I remember doing the impressions of the little green man with my friends. It must have gone over school time a little bit for me to have been going, little green man and his little green friend. <laughs> And the whole point of it was he had no friends and he wanted a friend. And that was just so funny. <laughs> He'd get into all these escapades just wanting a friend. Well, there's a couple of regular characters. I say characters that you've left out who are the things that I mainly remember about it. There's Mercator's assistant in the first two series, Dr. Kovan, who was kind of a sort of learned Andy Peters figure, if I'm supposed <laughs> to describe him. There's also Z, who I've got in my notes was a sort of space Betty Boo, but that was basically Betty Boo was a space Betty Boo. So yeah. they were just copying Betty Boo. And you won't believe how long it took me to find out that she was called Francis Dodge. Nowhere Ooh. online where it lists the Parallel 9 cast does it actually include her, which is really weird. I acknowledge that the character existed, but they don't name her. And mm. the other one you've left out is Brian the Brian. Dinosaur in the Static Caravan. Dig it! <laughs> Well, it was operated by David Claridge, who did Roland Rat, and his voice just went oh, between yes. Roland Rat and Kevin the Gerbil. Yeah. And he was involved in my main memory of Parallel 9, which is I was slightly too old for it when it was on. I remember it being something that was on in the background on Saturday mornings. And it was around that time that BBC Two was sort of showing Thunderbirds and Stingray to enormous popularity. It was also around that time that The Secret Service, the weird Jerry and Sylvia Anderson comedy series with Stanley Unwin, <laughs> came out on VHS and they obviously thought oh the kids love Super Mario Nation let's plug that so Stanley Unwin must have been approaching 80 at that point turns up at the caravan to talk to Brian the Dinosaur in Unwin ease about the Secret Service I've never witnessed a weirder more confused bit of television in my life nobody involved knew what was going on <laughs> was it like was it like when was it, um, who was it who went on the one show and was just bewildered was it it was somebody out of hollywood just sort of sitting on the sofa looking really confused <laughs> i think it was robert de niro or something like that just sitting there going what now jazz brandreth is gonna do something about shoes i don't what <laughs> oh i love interviews like that when nobody nobody understands <laughs> the Neighbours and, well, Neighbours and Home and Away, technically, actors mm. I remember the most on it were Lucinda Cowden, who was Melanie, the one with yes. the laugh, and also Richard Norton, who started on Neighbours and was poached by Home and Away in a sort of high-profile transfer of the hunks. 
he then <laughs> tried working in the UK for a bit. He was in Brookside for a while. Yeah, they often do that, don't they? Because uh, I think Neighbours gets Neighbours and Home and Away at that point was getting far more viewers in the UK than they were in Australia. So they'd all sort of decamp over to the UK quite quickly and would usually just end up doing panto. <laughs> a friend of mine did the local pantomime and was sort of looking after the talent and one of them was one of these Neighbours hunks. His name was Dave. She really liked League of Gentlemen. And at one point went, you're my wife now, Dave. And he didn't, <laughs> he had no idea. <laughs> what, now, I prefer it if you call me David and I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable about you. <laughs> just, just sort of land in the UK and sort of, uh, then have to sort of integrate with the cult comedy and arts and just have no idea of the culture that they're sort of trying to bounce off. <laughs> it's a good job nobody mentioned people. Parallel 9 to him, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> That's where you could have ended up. But yeah. interesting, I can't remember there being many high concept ones, at least on the BBC. Beyond this, it was kind of, they did used to do a lot of Saturday morning shows where there was a formula to them. And after that, it became, everything was sort of post going live. It was about the making of a TV programme and not even in the meta way. It was just kind of, hello, we're the presenters. That's the cameras over there. Sometimes it was witty, sometimes it was dry, but they never really went for that really weird, like you say, red dwarfish thing again. Yeah. I mean, the other high concept one was going train and that was ITV I think it was around the same kind of time it had the loose narrative to it it had a very young Mark Heat playing a baddie the Boo Brothers him and another guy called Mark a child would get in contact with them and tell them to boo somebody and they'd just run up to like somebody's big brother and shout boo at them (laughs) (laughs) and that was their thing and the best thing about those shows was quite often probably because they'd spent all the money on the concept they had to just grasp brown for any band that was willing to get up that time of the morning to you know because they really need the exposure and like you say quite often it was bands like let loose i mean i associate parallel line with being around the time of lots of boy bands who didn't really know how to act up for the cameras yeah were quite dull but sometimes you get bands like i remember distinctly i bet they don't mention this anywhere now the manic street preachers doing Love Sweet Exile on Ghost Train. <laughs> Every time after that, years later, when some Manix fans being pretentious and pompous, yeah. I just thought, I saw them on Ghost Train, mate. Ghost Train was excellent, though. The 815 from Manchester, now that was a depressing show. I'm pretty sure it was done on a car park roof. It was done on a roof of something, and in my mind, it was it was a multi-story car park. It was just, they chose the most depressing place to go, hey, kids! Who wants a really bad cartoon about a rude dog? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't actually need to identify it as rude dog, you said bad cartoon. That was fairly self-evident. Well, I don't know. There were lots of terrible cartoons around in those days. We, re- we like to remember the good ones, but there were some dross. Do you miss shows like Parallel 9, though? I miss, like... Silly high concept fun. I think that was very 90s. I don't know. Do they do high concept? I don't know. My kids don't, I've got kids and they don't really watch telly. <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> Especially since I write kids telly. It's like, what the kids into? Not us. <laughs> they're, into, they're into watching millionaires open boxes. <laughs> and other millionaires playing Fortnite. So I don't even really know what a lot of kids' TV is like anymore. I do miss, yeah, the sort of just high concept and just weirdness, just people being silly. I got the feeling that a lot of what was going on on those shows was very loosely scripted, but just people just dicking about, really. And sometimes that's all you want, really. But we've got to your next choice now, where... I don't really know if I can find an appropriate way of getting (laughs) Parallel 9 into this. So I 
tried and tried, and I couldn't really find any news footage about this. I've got some more recent news footage related to it, and we'll find out exactly what we're referring to in a minute. Ever wondered what an earthquake sounds like? Mary Roberts from Morva Nevin recorded this morning's tremor on her smartphone. The app I've got on my phone recorded it and it just automatically switches on to record when there's any noise and I thought it wouldn't be loud enough to record on the phone but it actually did and it sounds uh, frightening when you listen back to it. Okay, that was a more recent story about an earth tremor in clan but Gabby, you've got memories of an earlier one. Yeah, it's in fact one of my first memories. My very first memory, I think, is me eating a strawberry and throwing up but I'm pretty sure my second memory is... So we lived in the absolute middle of nowhere just outside Carnarfon village called Bethel which is between Carnarfon and Bangor in northwest Wales when I was a very little girl we had a tiny little house and our room the room that me and my sister shared was probably just a cupboard I seem to remember there wasn't a door there was a curtain that attached onto my parents living room which I remember being huge but I was very small so I think it was quite a small living room and we were in bunk beds and I have a memory of waking up to the sound of smashing glass which when you oh god what year was it? I haven't I haven't actually apparently. So I was four. So when you're a four-year-old, waking up to the sound of smashing glass isn't great. And I was also kind of aware that things were moving <laughs> that shouldn't be moving. I remember my mum running in because I was in the top bunk and physically pulling me out of bed and throwing me into my sister's bottom bunk and then staying with me then it was the Flam Peninsula earthquake which I think it killed somebody I think somebody got a chimney <laughs> literally we found out what somebody looked like with a chimney on her <laughs> I think I heard that somebody had been killed or during that or during one of the tremors and then I remember the aftershocks because again when you're four you don't really understand that it's not just earthquake and then done Something scary has happened and now it's stopped, which was my understanding of it to begin with. And then there were aftershocks and that was horrible. It's like, mummy, it's happening again. I remember my mum telling me, no, 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 it's, it's an aftershock. It's going to be smaller. We've had the big one and now this is going to be just sort of the earth just sort of settling. But it was a really, really weird, weird first memory for me to have. And the smashing glass was my parents' mirror falling off their bedroom wall. Or it might have been a, a portrait with a, with a glass frame, which was what woke me up quite scarily. <laughs> Well, that's kind of your seven years bad luck all in once. I know. <laughs> but apparently this was the largest mainland UK earthquake since records began. It was 5.4 mm. on the Richter scale. And it caused yeah. damage in lots of surrounding areas. And I actually remember, because there was a lot of damage caused in Liverpool, and our oh church God. had around the nominal garden of the priest's house, it was a very small perfunctory wall, which I'd always thought, why would you even have that wall anyway? It looks like it's just like bricks sitting on top of each other. And that came down in the earthquake. Oh. The thing was, a couple of years later, we decided that Matt Goss was singing about that when he sang, I'll watch you crumble like a very old ball. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, Matt Goss had come all the way from Cheddar and been at our church when that had happened, and he decided to commemorate it in song. That's wonderful. I really hope that that's true. <laughs> I don't remember any damage being done. I don't think any damage was done to our house. I certainly don't remember any stories about 
I mean, there must have been damage nearby because we were right near the peninsula in Carnarvon. It was really close to it. Obviously, my memories of it are really, really hazy because uh, <laughs> I was only four at the time. But a lot of people don't remember it because... I don't know, because it didn't happen in the South. Like, all of my friends, like, all of my peers these days, they won't fucking shut up about the hurricane, which didn't happen to me, because at the time I was living in Derbyshire, and that was something that happened to somebody else. They will not stop going on about that. Yeah, you had a bit of wind, so what? The earth went mad when I was little. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody hears about it, because it happened in the North and the West. It was like, yeah, we had wind. Some trees fell down. The man on the telly said it wouldn't happen, and then it did. Changed the record. I wonder if anyone said there wouldn't be an earthquake on TV in the <laughs> Now I've heard some people say <laughs> that the earth is made out of plates. I must assure you it's not true. God is very happy with us. <laughs> the crops won't fail. I couldn't find much else that Clan is known for, to be honest. I'm sorry, I'm probably doing all the people from there a great disservice, but everywhere you look, there is just references to the earthquake. Mm-hmm. It's very pretty around there. I mean, my the house that I was living in when I was four was, like, so Welsh. It was, like, there was, like, Snowdonia, like, round the back. <laughs> we had our garden and then, oh, there's Snowdonia. It was very, very pretty and very, very small and very inaccessible to my parents who didn't have that much money. I think they had like a little Renault 4 or a Renault 5 which was constantly breaking which when you're living in the middle of nowhere isn't good well I've tried looking up just now live on air everyone to see if I can find anything interesting about it I can't find any mention of notable people anywhere all I've found is that it's noted for its breed of sheep who I'm guessing this is a typography of something more meaningful (laughs) they're known for their excellent profligacy They just go around throwing money everywhere. (laughs) To be fair, if you had a sheep with that much money, you would want to be noted for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's very beautiful, but yeah, not much going on. I want to compare North Wales to a young Orlando Bloom. It's absolutely gorgeous, but there's nothing going on. Okay, well, weirdly, for your next choice, relocating in a way to my hometown for a film that I'd completely forgotten about, here's the trailer, which really doesn't give very much away about it at all. and somebody whispering revenge at the end. You wouldn't have a clue from that what was going on. But Gabby, what was this? This was the 2002 movie of the Jacobean revenge tragedy, The Revenger's Tragedy, which I still insist is a black comedy, the play as well as the film. Basically, I studied the Revengers tragedy at uni because I was doing a really weird course that was wonderful called Fantasy and Desire. And it was all about basically porn. It started off with Roman erotica and then went into sort of more um, Tudor. Well, especially like Marlowe was like big on Roman erotica. So he was always rewriting it. And then it went into the Jacobean tragedies, which were always... So they were a bit more domestic than like Shakespeare's tragedy. They were a little bit after that and they were much 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 gorier we looked at like the duchess of malfi and so on but the one that really caught my eye was the revengers tragedy because it was so mad 
and just really, really, really funny. It's quite a lot of, sort of quite dry stuff about women getting locked up and stabbed and stuff. This was um, about a bloke whose his bride has been poisoned and he keeps hold of her skull and talks to it. And basically him and the skull decide that they're going to take revenge on the entire family of the guy who killed his bride. And he goes on this long spree of revenge and revenge killings. And it's really funny. There's a, so there's a masked ball, which means that lots of people are killing each other by accident because everyone's in disguise it all sort of builds up to a point where one guy stabs one person and then i think another guy goes you just stabbed my brother i kill you and then another person goes you just killed my brother i'll kill you you just killed my best friend i'll kill you so this is big long chain of revenge murders that happen really really quickly like one literally after the other until this the one guy who's left is standing amongst all these bodies with like a knife and then the the guy who's like here to bring back order to the world you know the um the policeman character who just shows up at the end and goes what's going on here then he shows up with the police and says did you just kill all these people and the last guy standing goes no i only killed him (laughs) (laughs) which is brilliant And yeah, this uh, this film by Alex Cox is suitably bonkers. It's set in the far-flung future of 2011. It is. It's set in Liverpool in 2011. I can tell you it's nothing like that. We've got to call me Burger Kitchen that year, so it must be a dystopia. So yeah, everything's collapsed. Um, the whole southeast of England is gone. We'd never find out why, whether it was an explosion or whether it was climate change. But the whole of the southeast of England is gone. And yeah, it's set in Liverpool in this very sort of 28 days later kind of uh, like... I think uh, the first scene is Chris Eccleston, who plays the protagonist, Vindici, who shows up on this knackered bus that then, like, drives straight into a skip or something. (laughs) And then he he gets off, shaves his head and fucks off. (laughs) It's so funny and absolutely mad. And it's got Eddie Izzard in it, which is always a good sign that the film is going to be just bonkers. He's playing a very camp villain. It's also got the actor Paul Reynolds in it, who I really love. What, Colin from Press Gang? Colin from Press Gang is in it, playing a character called Junior, who I think is the first one to die. All of these baddies have all got loads of eyeliner and leather trousers and stuff like that. And I quite fancied Colin from Press Gang because I was like, oh, he's got eyeliner and leather trousers on. That's exciting. Uh, it's really really good and just yeah mad absolutely mad i love it it's got Derek jacoby as the main baddie just really hamming it up everyone's hamming it up everyone seems to be having a whale of a time i've got to say do you know who adopted it for the film it's frank cottrell boyce and you know he has had quite a you know an impressively wide-ranging career this isn't unusual for him to do something off the wall like this but i would say given the fact that i went to see the richard herring's lesson square theater podcast where he was the guest and mm. the fact that even Richard didn't pull out the Avengers tragedy as he's probably best known for shows how forgotten it is. It's that forgotten that people aren't even making jokes about it. But I remember 
it being quite heavily publicised at the time. Mm. But I think it's from that era, so it makes me think of the very last days of Blockbuster Video, mm. when you would go and get something out because you felt you still had to. Like, you yeah. keeping the industry alive somehow. And there would be, you know, because they got less copies of the things by then. Anything good would have gone. And there'd be <laughs> things like this and other odd British films at the time. It just reminds me that it was an era when I think British films were trying to do... I don't think this was a mistake. I think they were taking a different as what we do best approach. Mm. Which at any other time would have really worked, but it was a time when they weren't getting through to the audiences that they might have met because cinema attendances were down, people weren't really renting things anymore. It was a weird hinterland between the old way of watching films and the new way that we used to now. And things like this just kind of fell through the cracks. Also, it was really badly reviewed, I should say, so that probably didn't help. Shame. It was. It's such good fun, and it, it really suits the source material. Because the source material is just mad. Just I can't think of anything that suits that play more than setting it in 2011, but a dystopian version where everyone's beating up people who've come from... Isn't it that the people from the South, the baddies are from the South, they relocated when some sort of event happened and just sort of squatting, basically, in, in Liverpool because it's the only place left. Yeah, it's it's so weird and just wonderful and colourful and, and gory and, and just suits the source material because that's just the play. It's just, it's weird and angry but very funny and another quite weird thing about it is the soundtracks by Chumbawamba <laughs> which I didn't I don't remember noticing anything unusual about it when I was watching the film but I'm not a lover of their work just in general shall we say it goes back a long way before Tub Dumping before the yeah. Prescott thing I wasn't that interested in going and listening to the soundtrack album I asked a friend of mine who knows a lot about them where the soundtrack album stood in their canon and he said <laughs> it's skippable <laughs> And this is somebody who gets angry with me for not liking <laughs> But I remember the music working quite well in the film, so maybe it just doesn't work as an album because yeah. sometimes soundtracks aren't meant to. Maybe it's because it's slightly sort of after its time. It manages to be incredibly 90s while also being from 2002. It's not like, yeah, we've got Chumbawamba, we've got Eddie Izzard, we've got all your 90s favourites. <laughs> yeah, thanks. The 90s were three years ago. So why do you think it's just been almost completely forgotten? There's very mm. little about it out there on the internet, I must say. I honestly... Oh. Maybe it's, it's just so weird. It is a, a Jacobean, the text is still sort of Jacobean, so it might not be that accessible because they're talking all old fashioned like. And obviously, you know, Thomas Middleton isn't, if you do like a Shakespeare film, like that Romeo and Juliet, the big mad Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet, that again is like a really mad modern retelling of a play from that era. But it's Romeo and Juliet. Everyone knows Romeo and Juliet, whereas people don't know the Revengers tragedy because when I was studying it people still didn't know who'd written it I think now it's been attributed to Thomas Middleton like fully but at the time that I was studying it people were still like eh, it could have been here we don't really care it's just this silly thing it's a lesser known version of quite a lesser known type of play so the text isn't that well known and I don't know maybe it's sort of considered sort of quite sort of low rent anyway being this sort of weird little British thing I just really love it because it's I just love the Revengers tragedy it's just so silly and it's a very Christopher Eccleston film yes before he was in Doctor Who that's what I always associated him with was films like this yeah 
absolutely chewing the scenery, <laughs> having, having a whale of a time. I just realised that him and the actor Paul Reynolds had their first big break together in Let Him Have It, didn't they? Paul Reynolds is, is amazing in Let Him Have It. He passes for a lot younger than he is, like a lot of the press going cast. I think they were all sort of like in their mid-twenties playing like 19-year-olds. He was still very young when he played his character. I think his character's meant to be like 15 or 16, and he's pretty well able to pass for that, but he's still very young to be playing such a a complex character. Eccleston was quite a bit older. He was in his 20s, I think, but he was playing like a 19-year-old. I really like Paul Reynolds. He's really good. He should be in more stuff. (laughs) He's great. He is. I might have to write, I'll try to write him a sitcom. (laughs) It's Paul! Exclamation mark. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, pulling back from a Paul Reynolds sitcom slightly, we're staying in kind of dark territory with noted British actors for your next choice, although it's not actually on the big screen. Discworld Noir. Now, some of you may know the word Discworld. Some of you may be familiar with Discworld, but possibly not with the word Noir attached. Gabby, what are those two words doing together? They are together because they're one of the best games I played when I was in my early 20s. It is Discworld Noir, which is probably the least known of the Discworld video games that came out sort of 90s and noughties. This was a, a point-and-click adventure. I got it uh, for the PlayStation, a PlayStation that I bought. My uncle gave me £200 for Christmas 1999. I went out and bought myself a PlayStation. I was 19 and I spent that whole Christmas playing two games, <laughs> one of which was Doom Raider 2, the other one I've forgotten. I can't remember where I got Discworld Noir whether it was from a friend or whether I bought it, but I had a copy of Discworld Noir and I spent pretty much my whole second year at university coming home from pubs and clubs at any time between midnight and half past two in the morning and then sitting up playing Discworld Noir until about five. (laughs) It was a point and click adventure. Uh, I think it owed quite a lot to Grim Fandango, but at the start of the game, you get murdered. And for the first half of the game, it then backtracks to like half a year ago and you're building up to your own murder. You get murdered halfway through the game again. <laughs> um, you get back to the present and you're murder. And then you come back because you were murdered by a werewolf. And then for the rest of the game, you're a werewolf detective. And it's brilliant. <laughs> it's very discworldy because you can have werewolves who solve crimes but nothing's ever been done from the point of view of a werewolf solving a crime before. And you, you're solving your own murder and you're also solving all of these other mysteries that are surrounding it and also saving the disc world because magic has been unleashed that threatens the world. And with your werewolf powers, you can see smells. That's a new sort of ability that comes in halfway through the game. If you're stuck, you can transform and see if there's a scent clue, which was brilliant. That blew my mind. <laughs> 
when I was a, a constantly drunk student. <laughs> That's amazing. But I love it. It's got the main characters played by Rob Brydon, a pre-fame Rob Brydon back when he was a jobbing voice actor, which you can absolutely hear. You can totally hear he's putting on sort of a, an American gumshoe voice. But the Brydon is definitely there. <laughs> I think it's also got Robert Llewellyn in it. It has, yes. And Kate Robinson, Nigel Planer as well. Oh, brilliant. I think Nigel Planer was in another of the Discworld games. I think um, I might be getting him mixed up with somebody. I know Eric Idle was Rincewind in the first Discworld game. Well, that's an interesting thing, though, about the Discworld games. Even for people who weren't that into Temi Pratchett and Discworld, were very accessible. I should say, by the way, I did find out that Temi Pratchett was involved with this and he was credited on the game with far too much interference. <laughs> which I, thought, <laughs> I think it's, he would have been proud of that as well. It's weird, though, that you should have such an accessible game for something that... I take the view about Discworld that it's something that if you know about, it all makes sense. And if you're an outsider, it can seem very daunting. It's similar to the way I get people asking me all the time. In fact, somebody texted me last night saying, can I watch Captain America Civil War if I've not seen any of the other films? Aww. Like, yeah, it's just superheroes fighting each other. And Discworld is the same. Yes, Discworld yes. is so so accessible and I remember when Terry died a lot of the fans were sort of talking about it and a lot of the, the people who hadn't really picked it up before were saying things like this guy actually sounds really cool like, yes he is <laughs> he's the modern Swift um, because Terry Pratchett fans are the least gatekeepers nobody is a gatekeeper not like like Star Wars and stuff like that oh you're not a true fan if you don't know who's from where if you can't name everyone in the Senate you're not a real fan Discworld isn't like that there's loads of Discworld books I still haven't read and I'm a massive fan it's a really welcoming environment and I think it, part of it is because it's so accessible you don't have to know the law you can pick up small gods and that's just a, a book in itself a satire on religion and, and religious intolerance and with this game I hadn't actually read any of the watch books I'd only been reading the death trilogy and the books about the witches but it was still so accessible to me because this was just a grimy city it was London and New York and LA it was all of these cities that the noir films get set in all together it was a little bit Paris it was like a little bit San Fran it's accessible straight away it's like yeah in this world you've got talking dogs and you've got werewolves and vampires that's really easy to understand oh there's ghosts there's vampires that's fine there's trolls and dwarves and they hate each other there's racial tension inside a multicultural city that's all you really need to know <laughs> and it's really easy and accessible so yeah I, I was a Discworld fan at the time that's probably why I picked it up but I didn't know Ankh Morpork when I started playing it and I didn't know the watch and I just got straight into it it was really 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 immersive and fun and it's a different character so it's not I think in the other Discworld games it's Rincewind who's the main character who's from the books the character in Discworld Noir is a new character his name's Luton. He's a, a private dick who got kicked off the watch for, I can't remember what it's for. It's a fairly standard private dick character. And as with Discworld, it's got lots of references to pop culture that are fun. But you don't need to know Discworld to know that Loretto Cronk, the very posh archaeologist, is Lara Croft. So, yeah, it was, it was super accessible and just lots and lots of fun. And, yeah, lots of riffing off lots of noir movies. There's a lot of Casablanca in there. So lots of the sort of Humphrey Bogart style movies it has a lot of fun with. Well, that brings me round to one 
of the few things we've been able to find out about it, apart from the fact that apparently when they were recording the voice track for it, they were worried about how intense Rob Brydon was and how much he was <laughs> devoting himself to his art and the thing there's something wrong with that guy. But that's just him. That's just how he is. But the other thing is, apparently, lots of people think there's too much humour in it. And people say, there's too many jokes. How can you have too many jokes in a game? And I would liken it to, I am going to get emails about this, but I didn't have this. A similar game I had around the same time was Douglas Adams' Starship Titanic, which... I didn't, despite being a massive Douglas Adams fan, I didn't like it. It was just, the jokes seemed to be wanting you to laugh at how clever they were rather than actually mm. being funny. It was very, very slow. This sounds like a lot more fun, really. Yeah, it was so much fun. I remember that there's one bit that really made me laugh, sort of when you get into the second act, which back in the days before you could look up how to get through a problem online <laughs> would have taken you some time. <laughs> lots and lots of asking people the same questions. I think at one point Luton goes I've been asking a lot of people if they know a woman called Carlotta <laughs> which just made me roll because that was always my first question <laughs> to the point that I think a lot of my friends were playing it as well it was in the days back in the old days where a student house like one of the students would have a control and you'd have the one we had one telly that we'd rented from like Radio Rentals <laughs> I think it was or Rumblers <laughs> one of the places that did I think it was Radio Rentals so we'd rented a telly and I had my PlayStation downstairs and my housemate Claire had, a, I think it was a Nintendo because I remember playing, it had Mario Kart on it. I can't tell you which, was that an N64? But she'd occasionally bring it down. That one that was one was mainly in her room because she had a telly up there as well. But the only electronics we had in the main room that everybody shared in the house was the telly and my PlayStation. So like a lot of my friends would like sit up because we'd all be trying to solve the mystery at the same time. Like, point over there, point over there. <laughs> Like, it's something we just do when we'd come home from the nightclub. Let's go and solve that mystery and have more pork some more. <laughs> Eat some toast. So, like, a lot of my friends that I still keep in touch with from uni, do you know a woman called Carlotta is, like, a catchphrase amongst us. On a more positive Douglas Adams note, that reminds me, have you ever played the original Hitchhiker's Game? The no. boss-based one? There's, no. I mean, there's all kinds of brilliant jokes in that. It's nothing like Starship Titanic, but there's a thing where Ford can't get his towel to Arthur for some reason <laughs> but if you say give towel to Arthur too many times it's picked up on an intercom by an alien race <laughs> to whom that is the worst insult possible and they start a war with another race and it has repercussions it messes up the whole game for you brilliant that's really funny <laughs> to be honest that playstation was my first introduction to having a game when i was a kid we had a zx spectrum but because my parents were very middle class we were only allowed educational games <laughs> on it. so we had mr t's number time and survivor <laughs> survivor was the closest thing we had to a game and then it was just like playing sonic at friends houses and stuff like that so that that PlayStation was my first time that I actually got to play computer games. So anything before the millennium is like, I didn't really get to play it. Okay, well, while you're staying up playing Discworld Noir, <laughs> we're jumping back in time a couple of years to my university days and a band that were everywhere at the time and pretty much aren't everywhere now. <laughs> Leaf spins round and round. 
Tree by Bally, which was a record that you couldn't move for hearing when I first started university. And I don't think I've heard it from that day to look it up for that clip just then. So, Gabby, who were Belly? Belly were a, I think they were American indie band in the mid-90s, female-led, beautiful voice. I got into them doing something that I'm going to talk about, even though it is the exact opposite of the brief of this show. (laughs) So (laughs) this is something that I didn't think everybody was going to know about, but everybody does. They didn't quite open. They were the second opening band for R.E.M. at the Milton Keynes Bowl in 1995, which I went to and was such an amazing day. It was Magna Pop, who weren't very good. Belly, who were amazing, who I'd never heard of before. Blur, who sounded a bit bored, but it was Blur. And that was exciting when you were a 15 year old in 1995. And then R.E.M., which blew my goddamn mind. And it turns out... I went with one other friend. I found the ticket stub quite recently and I posted a picture of it on Twitter going, oh my God, isn't this the most 90s thing you ever saw? And about a dozen other people who I was friends with on Twitter went, I was there. (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out that loads of people who I am now friends with online were at this same gig. It was amazing. It was so hot. I'd dyed my hair with the washing hair dye, chili pepper. I can't remember who made it. The women will know. Um, chili pepper washing hair dye. It was wash in, wash out. But I sweated so badly that it was then all the way down. I'd got a new beige REM t-shirt to wear to this gig. And it was just orange, <laughs> this orange sort of tie-dye effect as my head had sweated and my hair had just run with sweat and all this hair dye had gone all the way down my shoulders and my back <laughs> it was that hot I think I I kept trying to get we weren't allowed bottles in because in case somebody threw piss I remember I must have been getting water from somewhere but I didn't have to go to the toilet all day <laughs> I was there from very early in the morning till it ended and I did not go to the toilet once I was that dehydrated it was so cool so yeah that's how I got to know about belly and I was just really impressed and I bought star and king and star is definitely my favorite album I, li- I re-listened to them both before doing this podcast and, and yeah star's got all the bangers on it king's okay but star's got some amazing tunes on it I think it's been really Play down just how big. I mean, well, you can't really call Belly grunge. I'm not sure that's what you would call them. You know, because Tanya no. Donnelly, who was the main songwriter, main vocalist, had come out with Throwing Muses, and she was in an early lineup of The Breeders as well. So it was something that went back further than grunge, really. But that whole thing, you could roughly say grunge was very big in the early to mid-90s in a way that's been written out of history now, because it wasn't just Nirvana with occasional mm. side orders of Pearl Jam. You know, you had all these other bands like you know, Rage against the machine hole hole were excellent well even people like full on blondes were basically like a corporate version (sighs) of all that but they existed all this stuff was massive i wasn't that into it because i was very much on the blur saint etienne side of things and Mm. as a youngster i saw those kind of bands as not quite the enemy but it was a bit sort of (laughs) but you're being on the one bit of an hour on radio one where they play an indie record why can't we have more tomorrow why blur instead (laughs) but that exactly underlines my point they were everywhere they were in the charts. There's a special little late show called No Nevada with all these bands on. <laughs> they were on the cover of sometimes of smash hits even. Yeah. People don't recognise that now, I don't think. It's really weird. I mean, that's why Britpop happened, was because, mm. you know, everything was American for such a, a long time. It was nothing to do with national pride or anything, or even with Oasis. It was just that some people were sticking their heels in a bit. But, yeah, that doesn't get talked about now. And Belly, it's really weird. We're really big. To be honest, the fact that they were big completely passed me by, because um, at my school, it was R&B or nothing. <laughs> I was one of the, like, 
a handful of people who were into like guitar based bands and they were mostly into like Nirvana. So, yeah, I was at my school. People didn't know. Barely. I mean, I was 15 at the time, so I was maybe a little bit young. It wasn't like student culture for me in the mid 90s. It was I was at a Catholic school in suburban southeast Derbyshire. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I was the only person who I knew who even knew about the enemy and Melody Maker. Um, everyone else was still reading Smash Hits. Uh, uh, yeah. And it was very much sort of big pop which is fine. It was what people were into. But I preferred yeah, guitar-based bands. Yeah, I really loved it. It really sort of blew my mind. <laughs> She's got a beautiful voice. There's one song on Star, Untogether, who I think there's been a cover of it fairly recently. I can't remember who did the cover, but it's really nice. This is a duet, this cover that has been done fairly recently. But Untogether is really pretty. The first verse that really spoke to me was it. I was friendly with this girl who was constantly touching my face. She told outrageous stories. I believed them. So the endings were changing from endings before. She's not touching me anymore. And in my little 15-year-old head, who kind of knew she was bisexual but couldn't say it because I was at a Catholic school in southeast Derbyshire and you didn't talk about that because bisexuals were sluts. And also it was the middle of Section 28 as well, so I had nobody to talk to, nobody to talk to about that. Um, the only bisexual we knew about was Michael Stipe. And if you mentioned to anybody when a parent was around that Michael Stipe was bisexual, they said some very fruity things. So that, that verse felt to me like it was talking about something that wasn't a friendship, uh, something that was very sad, um, something that was being tiptoed around and the line, she's not touching me anymore, felt really tragic. And I remember just thinking about that verse so much and listening to it again recently, now that I'm sort of being okay with uh, with being by it, it made me start crying. <laughs> um, just the the confusion and the sadness in that verse that I may have completely read into it, but that's what those words certainly meant to me. Um, and that's something that I sort of, I think about a lot when I think about Belly, thinking about that, that song and that verse and going, is that what I think it's about? <laughs> Well, this must have been monster era REM. Yes, it was. It was the monster tour. Now, I always find this really, really fascinating. There seems to be a kind of almost a fence in the middle of REM's career, where if you'd liked them before that, monster was a betrayal of everything you'd liked about them. <laughs> and if you if you come in after that, you think it's a great album. I love the fact that, I'm no fan of monster myself, but I love the fact that you've got those two entirely valid <laughs> viewpoints. I mean, my main memory of it was on Radio 1 around that time, how much Chris Morris hated it he made fun of it all the time and Lee and Herring when they had their Radio 1 show were scathing about Monster Aww. but equally you know it sold better than not the automatic for the people it might sell better than Out of Time actually mm. and I love the fact that to some people it is a tremendous album I like there to be that kind of dichotomy of views about things and Monster <laughs> really really embodies that oh I'm going to disappoint you because I think it's basically fine that it's the Red Dwarf season 6 of albums <laughs> it's okay <laughs> It, they did worse afterwards. They did worse ones afterwards. But it's not... I mean, my favourite ones, I really love Green. I think it's lovely. It's got some really good pop songs in it. And then it's got some really nice sort of soulful, introspective songs in it. Green's my favourite. 
and then probably Edson, then probably Automatic for the People, and then probably Monster, which is okay. <laughs> so you never heard Chris Morris's news report about Michael Stipe touring a nation dressed as a monster to promote it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, no. <laughs> okay, well, moving on to your last choice now, which is something that you might well have had to drink while you're at that REM gig. <laughs> そんなあなたに素晴らしい朗報です。カナブリス。交換器を使い犬が吸い込んだ物質を人間の血液に流れ込ませるのです。もちろんあなたは安全。しかもズドンと聞きます。僕はカニブリス愛用してます。特にドッ
So I had my army trousers on and <laughs> and my trainers, and I could still get in completely madly dressed. I could still get in to jump around in Rock City to on a rope. <laughs> and to jump around probably as well. And to jump around probably, <laughs> yeah. I've got very clear memories that they'd almost always play on a rope. And that the the music from um from TFI Friday, the Riverboat song, yeah, they were always playing that. That brings me on to crack is kind of a weird confluence of two things that are going on around them because I mean you know they still promote alcohol to students through the prism of Ireland even now. Oh yeah, really big thing around then. There are all those. There's a kind of weird Ireland is cool sort of thing around then. You know, with uh, definitely in the late nineties because it was all about Guinness, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and you know, there was Father Ted, the Cranberries. Mm. Yeah, this all sounds like a kind of like really offensive prejudiced view of you know a very narrow view of ireland at this point but those were kind of big influential things they really did push alcohol to students through that and to somebody who has very strong irish heritage and grew up in a city where you're reminded Mm. of that on a daily basis i always found that faintly embarrassing when as a student i used to like look (laughs) especially on st patrick's day when you know very posh kids from you know (laughs) they might have heard the word island once or whatever would paint themselves green and jump up and down go oh 12 lovely pints it really embarrassed me but there was that and also alco pops which probably considered a bit naff now but i remember at the time because mm. my memories of that time of the whole kind of Britpop era you know particularly the Blur Oasis summer and so on everything yeah. seemed bright and vibrant everything was gaudily coloured and drinking yeah. like you know Hooch and Memphis Mist and Two Dogs and so on felt like it fitted in with that it was a it was a more jolly way of drinking alcohol than you know just endless quite often literally grey pints you know it, mm. it felt like it chimed with the times and this was trying to corner both of those markets I don't think it worked because I don't think this was around very long was it I have no idea because <laughs> well because uh, I went to I went to uni in 1998 and then I pretty much stayed there my parents split up and so I had no reason to go back to Ilkeston because I didn't have a home there anymore um so i, I have no idea because i never went back to film calls after i went to after i went to university so i do not know and that's the only place that served it and they and when i went to uni of it. <laughs> they ordered in thinking you buy more of it. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine the landlords are trying to do a parent trap for my parents to get them back together <laughs> so, <laughs> so please you're the one girl who drinks crack <laughs> she must come home <laughs> no no that didn't happen um and yeah after that i yeah i didn't really drink because because i could get cider for one pound fifty and cider's delicious um so i was drink just drinking that and alcopops were like a bit too fancy there because if, you, if you're buying alcopops from a bar it'd be like over three pounds which when you're a student's like i can buy i can buy a whole pint for one pound fifty i'm not doing that so yeah, I didn't really go back to Alka Pops after that because because um, cider was you'd get more of it and it was as tasty as as an Alka Pop because it's it's basically just that's cider's like the the original Alka Pop, isn't it? It's alcoholic apple ties. So I just I just drink strong black <laughs> and it was all fine. Yeah, I think I was probably a little bit too old for Alka Pops by then as well. And we didn't have oh fifty fifty. Has anybody mentioned fifty fifty on this? No, not fifty fifty. Twenty twenty. Twenty twenty on this. The um the it felt like it was like an alcopop version of vodka. <laughs> 
it was you get these little bottles that looked like clearasil and it probably was <laughs> it probably was part clearasil to be honest it was incredibly strong but it also had a faint taste of like kiwi fruit just to take the edge off <laughs> that was the really evil stuff because <laughs> that was it was sweet but it was also like <laughs> a spirit <laughs> that you just drink from this hip plus thing. Awful. Named after one of the worst years that there's ever been as well. So <laughs> they knew it must have been invented by a time traveler <laughs> who'd been to this hell year and had gone back to the 90s and tried to warn us <laughs> through the medium of drink. <laughs> and they got distracted by listening to Monster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This isn't as good as automatic with the people. <laughs> Let the world burn! <laughs> I think on that note, that's... <laughs> that's a good judgment. Well, not for the past, for the future to finish yeah. on. God, yeah. it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org. Simon Quinlag, Pot Facts. One FM DJ and comedian Stuart Lee saw REM in Coventry 11 years ago before any of you liked them, making him the best at liking REM hobby after me. And even we don't like their new album. Pop Fact. The new REM album is so disappointing that when Rich and Stu were driving around in Stu's car listening to it, Rich said, oh, this band sounds a bit like REM, but not as good. And that's true. 